This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. Dr. Michael Pivovar first worked for the SEC as a visiting scholar from Iowa State. In 2004, he joined the SEC in the Commission's Office of Economic Analysis. In 2013, he was appointed to the Commission by President Obama after having served as Chief Economist for the Senate Banking Committee and he was designated acting chairman of the commission from January to May 2017. In July of this year, he stepped down and ended his long career and term of service to the commission, where he worked on a number of important oversight issues, such as investor protection, market structure, and capital formation. He joins me now for a closer look. Let's start talking about bond transparency, an issue which has bedeviled us for nearly 50 years. You reminded me that 20 years ago, I spoke about bond market transparency, and it seems this is an ongoing issue that never ends. And you say that you cannot recall any other market's issue that has generated as much debate with so little certainty about the extent of the problem or how to resolve it than the issue of corporate bond market liquidity. Where do you think we stand and where do you think we're going? Well, in terms of transparency, uh, where we stand is um, a, a, we are much further along the spectrum of transparency 20 years after you gave that speech. I, I was reminded of that speech. I was putting together uh, some notes for an event that I'm doing in September, and it hit me that, wait a second, this is the 20th anniversary that Chairman Levin gave that, Levitt gave that speech. And so I went back and looked at it, and I said, yes, it has been exactly 20 years. And so in those 20 years, there's been a number of uh, improvements that the SEC uh, has made in terms of bond market transparency, most importantly in the issue of post-trade transparency for public investors. Uh, after you gave that speech, what was then the NASD and what is now FINRA, a self-regulatory organization, uh, along with uh, the MSRB, the Municipal Securities Rulemaking Board, a self-regulatory organization for the municipal bond market, began a series of initiatives to add post-trade transparency to the bond markets, to the corporate market and the municipal bond market. Uh, what post-trade transparency means is that for the first time, public investors were able to see transaction prices that were affected by other investors. And so then they could make decisions about whether they wanted to buy or sell or hold their bonds given the prices that were in the market. And uh, it took some time to get that done. I joined the commission, as you mentioned, uh, in 2002. And uh, I worked on some initiatives that added the post-trade transparency to the market. It took us a couple years to get that done. Uh, and now we're at a point where uh, any investor can go to the FINRA Trace system or to the MSRB EMA system and see any of the recent transactions in any bonds that they uh, would like to buy uh, or sell. Would you say that there's as much transparency in our bond markets 
today as we could ever expect to see? No. Uh, that What I've spoken about is post-trade transparency. Uh, we also know there's other dimensions of transparency, uh, namely what, what uh, market structure experts refer to as pre-trade transparency. So, for example, in the equity markets, we not only can see the transactions that were just made, but we can see bids and offers or the prices at which uh, market makers or brokers or dealers are willing to buy and sell securities. In the bond markets, we see much less pre-trade transparency. There are some mechanisms for some uh, institutional traders uh, to get some amount of pre-trade transparency, but for the average investor, uh, the bond market is still lacking along that dimension. Would you choose transparency over liquidity? I think they both go hand in hand. I think what uh, the transparency initiative showed uh, was that when you increase transparency in the bond market, particularly in the, on the post-trade dimension, that it actually improves overall liquidity. And um, thinking back, at the time, there were concerns that somehow, if you added transparency to the markets, that somehow it was going to have a detrimental effect on liquidity. And that was one of the things that the SEC was very much concerned about uh, moving forward, that to make sure that uh, we made we, we maintained um, fair, orderly, and efficient markets, which is one of uh, one of the one of the parts of the core mission of the SEC, and to make sure that you know uh, first do no harm um, to the markets. And so, um, one of the concerns was that if we added transparency, it might harm liquidity. Well, uh, myself and some other academic and, and some other uh, SEC economists, namely uh, Larry Harris and Amy Edwards. Uh, did a study on this, and we found that, in fact, by in by increasing transparency, it actually improved uh, the liquidity of the market. And in fact, there were two other academic studies that were done at the time that showed uh, the, the the exact same results, although they they did their study slightly differently. Um, it it showed that, and so um, what what it showed was that transparency and liquidity are inextricably linked, and and in fact, it can be a win win situation. The president recently suggested, after talking to the outgoing CEO of Pepsi and others, that one cure for Wall Street short-termism is for the SEC to think about ending quarterly reporting and go to twice a year. What do you think of this idea? Short-termism is certainly an issue that uh, cropped up in the, probably the last six months of, uh, of, of my term as commissioner. It's something that I hadn't really... Uh, heard of um, for about 20 years when I was an MBA student in the 19, early 1990s, uh, there was a concern at that point that the U.S. securities markets were were too short-term uh, focused and we needed to be long more long-term focused uh, like Japan. Now, subsequent to that, we know fast forward uh, 25 years later, the U.S. economy has gone on to bigger and better things and the Japanese economy uh, has not. So first of all, I question the sort of the premise of, of whether short-termism is, is in fact uh, detrimental uh, to what's going on. Um, now, having said that, um, I, what I've noticed in the debate over this is, is, it, is that people seem to be conflating two different things. One, when they talk about quarterly reports, there's, there's two different types of reports. One is um, the, the, the quarterly financial statements that the, comp- the public companies file with the Securities and Exchange Commission, the 10 Qs, if you will. Uh, the second are uh, earnings reports or earnings guidance um, that are given by companies that are not required uh, by the SEC. Um, in, in the president's tweet, he said quarterly reports, and presumably he meant 10 Qs. But subsequent to that, I've seen reporting talking about this issue of earnings guidance. And this is an issue that uh, I've been talking to folks in public companies saying that uh, there are things that they can do for self-help that, that doesn't require the regulators 
to get involved in this. Uh, I certainly think the president's uh, tweet has, has re-engaged the debate over this. There was a law firm out there a couple of years ago that had put forward this concept. Uh, it's a healthy debate. Uh, the commission is always looking at ways in terms of trying to improve disclosure. Uh, they just passed a rule uh, recently that would that would uh, scale back uh, a bunch of d duplicative disclosures. And so this is cer certainly something that's on their radar screen and certainly something they're continuing to look at. My Bloomberg colleague, Barry Ritholtz, suggests the solution uh, is to make quarterly earnings less important. We should be exploring ways to report results more often, not less. And he suggests that we report earnings monthly with the goal of eventually moving to near real-time daily updates. Then short-term earnings obsession will all but disappear. In its place, he says, we'll have a focus on broader profit trends and deeper analytics. Do you think this idea has any merit? It could possibly have merit. This is a perfect example of uh, something that if the SEC is going to look at it, one of the things they might want to do is consider uh, looking at whether there is anything right now in the rules and regulations that act, that that, pre that prevent companies from doing this voluntarily. Uh, and if not, then companies some companies could choose to do this, and then the SEC could study the effects of it. Uh, if if there is something that is prohibiting this, perhaps the SEC could uh, look at potentially doing some sort of pilot program, uh, as has been suggested by uh, Georgetown uh, financial economist uh, Jim Angel. Um, the problem with, with doing a, a pilot study with this type of frequency is that it would take months, if not years, to actually find the results from, from what happened to this. But uh, I think it's, it's part of a healthy debate and it's something that uh, the SEC should continue to hear from folks from all sides on the issue. Let's talk about regulation best interest that the Commission is using to replace the Department of Labor's fiduciary standard rule. FINRA rules requires brokers to employ a reasonable belief that their recommendations are suitable. Regulation best interest elevates the standard to require broker-dealers make recommendations that are legitimately in their clients' best interests. But can best interest be clearly defined? That's an excellent question. In fact, uh, when, when the SEC proposed this, I was still on the commission earlier this year, and uh, one of one of the things I mentioned in support, I supported putting this out for public comment. And one of the things I mentioned in my opening statement was that I thought we could have done a better job uh, explaining exactly what this meant. And what's nice about the regulatory processes at the SEC is that when we put out a rule proposal, we put it out for public comment, and that allows us to get feedback from anyone in the public. Um, it, it doesn't you don't have to be in the industry; you can just be any uh, public investor. Uh, and uh, you can, on our website, you can uh, submit a comment. Uh, I'm hoping that in the, through this public comment process, there are a lot of questions and potentially uh, some solutions in terms of how to better um, explain, more clearly explain uh, what the best interest standard is. Uh, one of the things that's important that goes along with, uh, that, that went along with that rule proposal was at the same time, the SEC, we proposed uh, two other things. One was... Um, something called um, uh, a CRS summary, a uh, customer relationship summary, that would, uh, when, it, when someone is sitting down in front of a financial advisor, um, it would be a disclosure document that would show the customer, um, do, does, who, does the person sitting in front of them, do they have a suitability requirement as is required by brokers, or do they have a fiduciary requirement, which is required by registered investment advisors, 
what do those two terms mean? How are how is the person sitting in front of you? Is how are they being compensated? What potential conflicts of interest they have? And the idea is to create one clear disclosure for the investor so that they can so they can distinguish between the two. The third thing that was uh, that we proposed at the same time was a, was a notice of proposed interpretation or a clarification of exactly what the fiduciary standard is for registered investment advisors. Um, it is a principle-based standard. Uh, a lot of uh, the specifics have been um, are, are come through common law, and so what the SEC wanted to do was put out for public comment uh, what we think some of the specific uh, requirements are and make sure that, uh, that, that people understand exactly uh, where the state of play is on the fiduciary standard. You've said that public comments will be crucial in shaping the agency's best interest rule. What kinds of comments have you gotten up to now? And what are people most concerned about? And when do you expect the rule to be finalized? Well, we just started receiving uh, comments. Uh, the comment period, uh, I've lost track of time, whether it's just <clears throat> ending or, or about to end, but we expect to receive uh, comments, or the SEC expects to receive comments uh, throughout the fall. Um, a lot of the comments uh, are on the reg best interest standard, clarifying exactly what that means, clarifying the definition of retail investor, trying to clarify how the regulation best interest <clears throat> Uh, is similar to or different than the existing FINRA uh, suitability requirement. Uh, and what's nice about the public comment process is that the first stage of it is that we that the SEC receives the public comments, and then the SEC then the staff will will either reach out uh, to people who have submitted comments, or oftentimes uh, folks that have submitted comments will request to meet with uh, commission staff. Uh, and throughout the fall, I anticipate there will be a number of meetings to try to clarify some of these concepts and, and listen to as many people as possible. At the same time, Chairman Clayton has been going out throughout the country uh, and meeting investors, retail investors, uh, outside of Washington, D.C., uh, and trying to listen to them and hear their comments. Um, they may not even be aware that the, that the public comment process is happening, but it's a way for him to get out and get direct feedback from people uh, explaining what Reg Best Interest is trying to achieve and then getting uh, interesting comments from them. Turning to cryptocurrency, the Virtual Commodity Association, created by Gemini Trust co-founders Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss and several of the world's largest digital exchanges, just announced it's forming its own group to help self-regulate their expanding industry. They say it's a step toward improving regulation of cryptocurrency amid criticism that regulators have been lax and slow. Have regulators been too lax and slow to make rules? What's holding it up? Absolutely not. The uh, I can say that for about the last year, year and a half of my term at the commission, uh, the most number of meetings that I took were in the fintech space, financial technology space generally, um, and then more specifically, uh, within the crypto space, whether it's uh, the crypto assets, cryptocurrencies themselves, uh, like uh, Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, uh, those types of things, or whether it was in the realm of uh, initial coin offerings. Uh, the SEC has been very, very busy uh, in this area. Um, a, little, a little over a year ago, uh, we put out something called the DAO report or Dow report based upon an investigation 
uh, of an initial coin offering that the commission determined, in fact, was a securities offering. And uh, the offering was actually hacked. Uh, the money was paid back, and the, and the SEC decided not to bring an enforcement action. But we also felt it was important to tell the world how we are thinking about uh, whether a particular type of initial coin offering is in fact a security, and therefore if it is a security, then it has to comply with existing securities laws. And, and in that report, what the SEC basically said was that they were thinking about it in terms of something called the Howey test. And this is a test that has been around since 1946 that was involved in the courts about whether something was deemed to be what's called an investment contract and therefore a security under the federal securities laws. The case itself in 1946 involved leaseback arrangements in orange groves. And um, from that, it flowed that you know things like leaseback arrangements in orange groves can, in fact, be securities. And it turns out that the prongs of the Howey test um, are actually very useful in, in determining whether uh, an initial coin offering is in fact a securities offering as well. And so in this report, what we, the SEC did was we told the world, this is how we are thinking about whether something is a security. And if it is a security, you need to comply with existing federal securities laws. And in addition to that, put out press releases, statements, speeches, tweets, everything we could to tell people, if you have questions as to whether or not this is in fact a security, come talk to us. And our doors have been open ever since. Um, I was very pleased to see that we have one of our experts in, this, in, in the cryptocurrency uh, area who um, previously had been in our enforcement division, has been move, moved over to our corporation finance division. That's important because it gives people comfort that they can come in and talk to the SEC uh, and, get, um, and, and get good information as to whether or not their offering is in fact a security. It also helps the SEC gather information. Uh, I know for a fact commissioners and staff at the SEC are trying to do as much as they can to learn about this very, very fast-changing market. Mike, what will it take to make regulators approve a Bitcoin exchange-traded fund? The SEC has done a number of things to try to communicate the number of hurdles that need to be overcome for the SEC to approve uh, a retail product that would, uh, that would have Bitcoin or other types of uh, assets in them. Uh, a couple of them have been done through the orders where staff has uh, dif disapproved uh, particular types of offerings. And in there, they talk about the standards for disapproval. One of the big concerns is, uh, is the manipulation of the underlying uh, spot market. So typically in, an, in, an, in a retail product at the SEC, an exchange traded fund or a mutual fund, the SEC has to be comfortable that whatever the underlying thing is that's in that ETF, whether that underlying thing is a stock or a bond or a Bitcoin, that the SEC has to be comfortable that there are rules and regulations in place to try to minimize the amount of price manipulation. In uh, securities, if, if you have an ETF, say, with uh, the S&P 500 index, well, the underlying things are S&P 500 stocks. Those are already regulated by the SEC. And so there's, there's no, not much of a concern there. If it's gold, for example, it's regulated by, uh, or gold futures, it's regulated by the CFTC. But Bitcoin spot transactions occur all over the world, and it's, it's changing rapidly. Uh, a couple years ago, most of the transactions were occurring in China. Uh, the Chinese government cracked down. Uh, subsequent to that, the, the Japanese government set up a regulatory regime, and a lot of the transactions have moved to Japan. And the market moves very, very rapidly. So one of the concerns that the SEC has is that this, this fast-evolving market can go to places uh, where, the, where they're not comfortable that there is good regulation in terms of uh, trying to prevent price manipulation. And that's just one dimension. 
another is um, valuation. So how, how are these things valued if they're trading on multiple exchanges at different prices at the same time? How do you strike a net asset value, say, at the end of the day for, for something that offers daily liquidity? Uh, another big concern is custody. Right? These transactions occur on the blockchain, many of them, but many do not. Um, if, if, if there's an exchange that you know, can, can offer Bitcoins off of the blockchain and they, they hold them in these so-called uh, wallets, whether they're hot wallets or cold wallets, those things get hacked all the time. And if there's uh, an investment company or an investment advisor that wants to hold these assets, uh, crypto assets, they have to, they have to meet existing uh, custody requirements. So those are just some of the areas. Now, how do people know that this is what the SEC is thinking? Well, a few months ago, the head of our division of investment management, uh, Dahlia Blast, put out an open letter. The letter was actually addressed to the Investment Company Institute, but it's a public letter that's available on the website stating here, I think it was like 30 or 40 questions that the SEC wants, would like to have answered uh, in order to try to get comfortable with approving a product that would uh, that would be sold to retail investors that would include cryptocurrencies such as such as Bitcoin. Uh, what's nice is that just in, in the past few weeks, uh, the SEC has opened up uh, a file on the website um, so that anybody that submits answers to the SEC on any one of those questions uh, through a letter or through an email, um, the SEC will put make those available to the public so that everyone has benefit to the conversation. And I know this is something that um, Commissioner uh, Hester Peirce had been pushing to try to make this debate more public and and try to get uh, more people involved in, in the conversation. And so folks that are interested in this can go to the SEC's website uh, and look for this and, and see how the debate uh, is evolving over time. And you can bet in the, in the coming weeks and months, the SEC officials uh, will be out there uh, talking about this uh, either in speeches or through staff letters or staff guidance to see how, see, see how each one of these, the answers to each one of these questions is evolving. I followed the progress of Gemini Trust co-founders, Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss through the years. And uh, I noted that uh, the commission turned down their recent uh, request and they've formed uh, uh, their own trade group to help self-regulate their industry. What was the problem with the uh, Gemini Trust filing and do you think it's something that they will be able to easily address? If you look at uh, the original denial was done through what's called delegated authority by the staff, uh, and that happened in 2017 when, when I was acting chairman. Um, and uh, what the staff identified was the concern about price manipulation, that the underlying spot market uh, could be manipulated, even though the, the Winklevoss uh, brothers had set up a Gemini exchange uh, to price the Bitcoin uh, prices off of uh, for for their exchange traded product application, um, there were it had very little trading uh, on that exchange, and a lot of the trading occurred elsewhere. So, uh, price manipulation was was one of the big concerns uh, for for the staff denial. Um, so, what happened after that was that uh, either a commissioner could have called it up for review, uh, or uh, they could have appealed. Uh, they decided not to appeal. Um, the commission, right after the election, we were down to two commissioners. The Winklevoss twins did ask for uh, review. Um, and, and, um, and, and so staff was reviewing that, and it reviewed it over a number of months. Um, they were not ready to make another recommendation uh, to the commission. The commission was not ready to make 
uh, its vote final until after I left um, in July. Uh, and they most recently did that. And uh, it was a split vote. It was uh, a 3-1 vote where uh, three commissioners voted uh, to deny the application and one commissioner voted to um, approve the application. Um, and now there are other applications before the commission that have subsequently been denied at the staff level and have been called up for review at the commission level. He was appointed to the SEC by President Obama in 2013 and briefly served as acting chair in 2017. He ended his long association with the SEC when he resigned this past July. Prior to joining the commission, he served as a senior economist at the President's Council of Economic Advisors in both the Bush and Obama administrations and he was the Chief Economic Advisor to the Senate Banking Committee. Dr. Michael Pivovar, thank you for joining us. Thank you. By the way, if you have comments about the program or suggestions for topics, please email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at Bloomberg.net. And follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt, one word. This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. 